You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. claims a DDoS campaign against Estonia. The head of GCHQ calls Russian cyber operations a failure. U.S. Cyber Command concludes its Hunt Forward mission in cooperation with Croatia. A criminal gang targets the travel and hospitality sectors. Thomas Pace of NetRise shares insights on firmware vulnerabilities. Daniel Floyd from Black Cloak on quantifying the business need for digital executive protection. And CISA issues five ICS security advisories. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Friday, August 19th, 2022. In retaliation for Estonia's removal of a Soviet-era war memorial, a T-34 tank, from a park in Narva this week, a large distributed denial-of-service incident was conducted Wednesday by the Russian hacktivist front group Kilnet, Reuters reports. The effects were negligible. With some brief and minor exceptions, websites remained fully available throughout the day. The attack has gone largely unnoticed in Estonia, according to reports. The incident is reminiscent of a 2007 cyber riot conducted by Russian operators against Estonia in response to the relocation of another war memorial from a public square in Tallinn to a cemetery. That 2007 incident has come to be regarded as the first clear case of a cyber war waged by one country against another's infrastructure. An op-ed in The Economist by GCHQ director Sir Jeremy Fleming characterizes Russian offensive cyber operations in the present war as a failure, stating, We have seen the Russian state try to align and coordinate cyber capabilities alongside more traditional facets of military power. To date, this hybrid intent has not succeeded. The impact has been less than we, and they, expected. Fleming attributes the lack of Russian success in its cyber campaigns to effective Ukrainian defensive efforts, assisted by international allies, stating, as we have witnessed heroic defense by Ukraine's military 
Online, we have seen arguably the most effective defense cyber activity in history. Operating under sustained pressure against a very capable adversary, this team of industry, intelligence, security agencies, and in some cases, citizens, has worked side by side to warn, respond, and remediate. And he teases an allusion to extensive British operational support of Ukraine in cyberspace, saying, An important component of our response to this situation may involve the UK's National Cyber Force, a partnership between GCHQ and the Ministry of Defense. This builds out from our world-class cyber defense and resilience to deliver offensive cyber capabilities. I won't go into detail about NCF activity. Stealth and ambiguity are key attributes of cyber operations. This secret and important work is conducted in accordance with international law and domestic legislation. It is authorized by ministers and scrutinized by judicial commissioners. It is this ethical, proportionate, and legal approach that sets us apart from our adversaries and from Russia's use of cyber capabilities in this war. The U.S. Cyber National Mission Force, an element of Cyber Command, has concluded what it characterizes as a successful hunt-forward mission in conjunction with Croatia, CyberScoop reports. U.S. Cyber Command did not explicitly connect the operation with Russia's war against Ukraine, but as the record points out, the command has said that it was giving priority in its hunt-forward operations to threats linked to Russia, and other recent deployments to Eastern Europe have been avowedly conducted for defense against Russian cyber operations. Security firm Mandiant reported yesterday on activity it's recently observed by APT-29, the Russian SVR operation commonly referred to as Cozy Bear. Mandiant says, We have observed APT-29 continue to demonstrate exceptional operational security and advanced tactics targeting Microsoft 365. We are highlighting several newer TTPs used by APT-29 in recent operations. Among its recent tactics has been the disabling of licenses in Microsoft 365 in ways that disable the important security functions performed for the suite by Purview Audit. Once disabled, they begin targeting inboxes for email collection. The threat actor has also been observed conducting successful password guessing attacks that have enabled it to take over dormant accounts and exploit the access thereby obtained. In all of this, Mandian credits APT-29 with an unusually high degree of operational security. Security researchers at Proofpoint report that TA-558, a criminal gang the researchers assess as a financially motivated small-crime threat actor targeting hospitality, hotel, and travel organizations, has increased the tempo of its operations in 2022, stating... Since 2018, this group has used consistent tactics, techniques, and procedures to attempt to install a variety of malware, including Loader Rat, VJ Worm, and Revenge Rat. Its targets have, for the most part, been in Latin America, its emails generally written in Portuguese or Spanish. The report concludes, TA-558 is an active threat actor targeting hospitality, travel, and related industries since 2018, Activity conducted by this actor could lead to data theft of both corporate and customer data, as well as potential financial losses. Organizations, especially those operating in targeted sectors in Latin America, North America, and Western Europe, should be aware of this actor's tactics, techniques, and procedures.
Proofpoint has indeed provided a guide to those tactics, techniques, and procedures. The U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency has made seven additions to its known exploited vulnerabilities catalog. As CISA reminds in its announcement, Binding Operational Directive 22-01, reducing the significant risk of known exploited vulnerabilities, established the Known Exploited Vulnerabilities Catalog as a living list of known CVEs that carry significant risk to the federal enterprise. BOD 22-01 requires FCEB agencies to remediate identified vulnerabilities by the due date to protect FCEB networks against active threats. The newly added vulnerabilities affect SAP, Apple iOS, Mac OS, Chrome, Microsoft Active Directory, and Windows, and Palo Alto Network's Pan OS. All of these are undergoing active exploitation in the wild, and U.S. federal civilian executive branch agencies falling under CISA's oversight are required to check their enterprise software and apply vendor patches no later than September 9, 2022. And finally, CISA has also released five industrial control system advisories affecting systems from Siemens and Mitsubishi Electric. The list of advisories can be found on CISA's website. Operators should read and heed. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. And now a word from our sponsor, Sixth Sense. Sixth Sense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. With its advanced platform, businesses gain complete visibility and control over their infrastructure, reducing IT and security risks and optimizing operational efficiency. With Sixth Sense, you'll get real-time alerts, risk-based vulnerability prioritization and remediations, and an intuitive automation and orchestration engine so you can focus on your core business goals. Confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose Sixth Sense, visit SixthSense.com. Black Cloak is a security firm focused on the unique needs of executives, board members, and high-access employees. 
They recently released their latest report titled Quantifying the Business Need for Digital Executive Protection. Daniel Floyd is Chief Information Security Officer at Black Cloak. What we've encountered is on the corporate executive side, these home networks actually resemble more of a small office network, or even in some cases, an enterprise network. What we've discovered is, you know, home wireless systems that have multiple access points, you know, 15, 20 access points, wireless LAN controllers, multiple switches, PoE switches, uh, you know, anything from Cisco to Fortinet routers and VPNs and firewalls, home theater automation systems from Savant, Crestron, Control 4. So when you actually look at these types of home setups, they start to resemble more of a corporate small office or even enterprise office setup. And and is this uh, just from a practical point of view that these folks tend to have larger homes with more gadgets in them? Yes. It's it's both that the larger homes as you know, if you get into the 10,000 plus square foot home, you're going to have a need to have a multiple access point system. Um, and be, due to that need, you're going to have multiple wireless LAN controllers, multiple access points, and this is where you get into the more enterprise-grade systems. And then you'll also have potentially IP camera systems, and this is where you'll see power over Ethernet switches, um, HP, Cisco, uh, types of switches like that that you wouldn't see in a standard home setup for most people. Now, in this executive's you know day-to-day life, in their interactions with their company, is it is it that their home is kind of out of sight, out of mind in terms of the, the security folks they have at the office? Yes, absolutely. So, you know, one of the things that, you know, corporates, socks and security teams struggle with is, you know, they're specialized in their corporate security. So they have within the four walls of their security, your sock is specialized in the type of equipment that you've purchased, right? You may be a Cisco shop, you may be a Juniper shop. Whereas the home networks are really outside the purview of the security team at the organization. And, you you know, these executive home networks are like snowflakes. No home is the same. So you have 20 executives, you're going to have 20 different setups. One home may have a Cisco wireless system set up with HP switches. The next home could be Fortinet. The next home could be SonicWall. Next home could be ubiquity. You're really you're never going to see the same home setup unless the security team at the organization set that up. Uh, it's literally going to be a snowflake per home, um, which makes it difficult for the security team to have the skill sets to secure these homes or even have the permission to secure these homes. And then, in addition to the different types of setups you see, you have the privacy concerns. You know, where do you draw the line in the sand from what the security team at the organization should be doing? at the office versus what access they should have at the individual's homes. Yeah, that was actually going to be my next question, which is, you know, is there a cultural issue here as well that, you know, the security folks don't want to, they don't want to mess with the boss's house, right? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, there's absolutely the privacy implications of it, both for the executive, but also for the security team. Uh, it, It could be a very uncomfortable situation for the security team to have to physically access the device, physically access the home, come across something, you know, that's more privacy related that they shouldn't have. Uh, And it can really become a very, you know, awkward, sticky situation. Teenage kids. Yes, exactly. (laughs) You know, and uh, 
the the home network is a totally different paradigm, right? You have, you know, the things that you can block and prohibit on a corporate network because it's owned by the company is totally different than what's going to be at a home network. You know, you, you, the home network is going to be wide open. You're not going to be able to deploy URL filtering. There's no Zscaler. There's no, you know, really shouldn't be, you know, installing Palo Alto firewalls at everyone's home. Right. Unless you do some type of network segmentation. And that can get real complicated, real messy uh, over time. How much of a real world threat is this? I mean, in, in terms of the things that you all are tracking, are the executives' homes a, a target? Absolutely. So what we've discovered is, you know, almost 20, a little over 20% of the executive homes have open ports. Um, that can lead to, as I mentioned before, security cameras, VPNs, routers, firewalls. And if you actually go back uh, a few years, there was a breach that occurred at a major social media company, uh, which I won't name, hmm. that actually occurred via this exact same attack vector. They were, it was, uh, it actually wasn't an executive, it was a uh, security site reliability engineer, was working from home, and there was an attacker that discovered his home IP address. Uh, and a lot of these home IP addresses are available on data broker sites. And you can actually Google um, someone, an individual or executive's name, and through a number of different ways, through OSINT, actually determine what their public IP address is. Hmm. This threat actor was able to compromise a device that was running at this link, link or social media employee's home that he was then able to then pivot from the privately owned device into a work computer that contained the SSH keys to access the remote access environment at the company. Mm. hmm well, so based on the information that you all have gathered here, what are your recommendations? How, how should folks come at this? So some of the strategies to reduce the risk at the executive's homes are, you know, kind of the same strategies that you would deploy at your corporate office, starting with asset management. What are the devices that are at the home? What types of devices are at the home? Uh, you don't know what you, you can't secure what you don't know. So, you know, taking an inventory of these types of devices. Then, you know, the, the same strategies that you would deploy at the corporate office, you deploy at the home, ensuring the devices are patched, make sure they're not end of life, making sure they still have support, making sure there's no misconfigurations or default credentials on these devices, things of that nature. One of the other things that we found very effective, a very low-cost high fidelity, low false positive rate is to deploy a honeypot or deception-like device at the home. Hmm. We've discovered that, you know, as honeypots can act as a early warning radar or early warning trigger system, uh, if someone does gain a foothold into the network, uh, one of the first things they're going to do is enumeration and attempt to pivot. And if you set up a nice juicy target, such as a honeypot, uh, it's a very effective way to detect an intruder in the network. That's Daniel Floyd from Black Cloak. There's a lot more to this conversation. If you want to hear more, head on over to the CyberWire Pro and sign up for interview selects where you'll get access to this and many more extended interviews.
Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. Thomas Pace is co-founder and CEO at NetRise, where they focus on the security of firmware in things like ICS, IoT, and medical devices. We kicked off our conversation with a look toward the skies, considering the security of satellites. Satellites have, uh, or any kind of space devices, um, including the associated infrastructure to support them, such as like ground stations and uh, the, the radar and any of the other kind of supporting infrastructure required have kind of been um, ignored for a reason that I guess I don't, I don't totally understand. Um, they are just devices like anything else. And so having appropriate visibility into the software components that are present on these devices that are obviously serving incredibly critical functions in the world, in our society, for the military, et cetera, is paramount. Um, and that has basically, that's really been lacking. You know, earlier in my career, back in the, I, oh, I suppose around the early 2000s or so, I, I was working in television and I remember having a conversation with a satellite engineer and this was really during the transition from analog to digital. And I remember asking him, you know, what keeps someone from stepping on another person's satellite transmission? And he basically, and he said, courtesy. And that was it. <laughs> I remember my, my yeah. jaw kind of hitting the floor. Uh, I mean, have we progressed much past that? I don't think so. I mean, you, you do have specific, like there's like government bans uh, in communication channels that I, I, I think are challenging for some people to leverage in some cases. But, uh, right. you know, it's really the FCC that's, that's regulating and monitoring this. It seems to happen at DEF CON just about every year where people bring radio jammers and, and are talking on channels and frequencies they're not supposed to. Mm. So things like the 911 channels, the like emergency response channels, like the police scanning channels that are reserved for specific things, obviously. Um, and they don't want people on there, you know, screwing around or messing with things or blocking those radio frequencies, things like that. But yeah, that's just, that stuff's just floating around in space. So being able to listen in or, 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 or jam it or add, add your own, whatever it is, isn't that huge of a challenge necessarily. So what are organizations like yours bringing to bear here? What, what are the, some of the mitigations that you all are proposing? Yeah, so what we are bringing to bear here is gaining visibility into what is going on inside of these devices. People view a lot of these devices, IoT, ICS, medical devices, embedded systems and vehicles, telecommunications equipment, and satellites as these like mystical black boxes where we don't have any idea what's going on inside. The reason we don't know what's going on inside is pretty simple. Uh, no one's looking. And why is no one looking? Because it's, it's challenging. 
you it's not like looking inside of a Windows operating system or a Linux operating system or something like that. It typically has to be done by evaluating the firmware that is running on these devices. And firmware is a just much harder thing to extract, analyze, and, and, and find risks in for, for a myriad of reasons. Now, we're very good at doing that. Um, so uh, simplifying visibility for very difficult things to gain visibility to is, is basically what we are doing. So now we can say things like, okay, we've identified these software components that exist in these devices. Once we do that, we can say these vulnerabilities exist for these software components, and then these vulnerabilities can be exploited, or uh, they can be they're being leveraged for ransomware, or we find things like uh, weak credentials, default credentials. We find things like expired certificates or certificates that have been like where the certificate authority has been compromised. We find public keys and the private keys are both in the same firmware image, which obviously is, I think, what you would call a worst practice. So things like that. Once we get access into the firmware, we've extracted that out and can identify the software components. You're basically solving that problem in the same way you solve a lot of these problems for like normal devices. But getting into them is 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 like a really big part of the challenge. And that's what we've done, you know, really, really well across a very wide, heterogeneous, disparate set of device types. Yeah. I mean, I, I suppose, I mean, you know, there's that old saying, you know, if it, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. But that really doesn't apply here because, as you say, you know, vulnerabilities can be discovered along the way. So even though something may be sitting there doing its function, it, it doesn't mean that uh, it's not essentially a sitting duck. I mean, that's 100% right. So we have identified something like it's well over a million what are known as end-day vulnerabilities. So... They're not zero days. What this means is these are vulnerabilities whereby, like OpenSSL vulnerabilities, as an example. Let's say there's vulnerabilities from 10 years ago. And I go look in that national vulnerability database, and I want to say, what devices have this vulnerability? There's a 0% chance that every device that has that version of OpenSSL is in the national vulnerability database. That's just not mm -hmm. the way it goes. So what we have figured out is there's countless devices. I mean, countless that are not even in the NVD at all. And so every vulnerability that we find in a software component in a device like that is basically known as an end day, meaning this is a vulnerability that is known to exist, but is not known to exist on this device because no one's looked. Um, mm -hmm. And that could be because the device manufacturers don't ha even have a product security team, um, which is more common than I would care to admit. But it's also just because, you know, time to market matters with these devices and the security of them kind of kind of takes a back seat. But at the same time, we're seeing attacks now. I mean, we've been seeing attacks for a very long time. Uh, a lot of these attacks weren't maybe in the public eye, especially for people who are working in the darker corners of the government that knew these kind of things were happening. But now it's in the mainstream. Like there was a big firewall manufacturer last year that literally recommended to their clients to turn off their firewalls because a vulnerability was being exploited that was allowing attackers to launch ransomware attacks within their environment through their firewall. Mm -hmm. So who's watching the watchman, as they say? Like uh, there's there a bunch of really famous VPN hacks last year that were also being used for the same thing. Speaking of satellites, uh, there was a large satellite manufacturer that had an issue recently, but that actually came through VPN vulnerabilities that gained them access to the, to the satellites. So 
you can see here that th this is not this is not like uh, just saying like, hey guys, these are risks. Like there's risks in every single thing we do every single day. There are actual tangible attacks that have been happening for years uh, against these devices via exploiting the firmware vulnerabilities. That's Thomas Pace from NetRise. The Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. Be sure to check out this weekend's Research Saturday and my conversation with Dick O'Brien from Symantec. We're discussing the Clipminer botnet making operators at least $1.7 million. That's Research Saturday. Check it out. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, Brandon Karp, Eliana White, Rue Prakash, Liz Urban, Rachel Gelfin, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here next week. And now a word from our sponsor, Zscaler the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.